Hi folks, Michael Cohen here, and I have some exciting news for all of you. Mea Culpa is coming to Los Angeles for a live event on Tuesday, November 1st. I'll be joined by Emmy Award-winning comedian Kathy Griffin, former Deputy Attorney General and Talking Feds host Harry Littman, as well as former Oath Keepers national spokesman Jason Van Tattenhove. It's an evening you won't forget. VIP tickets include a signed copy of my newly released book, Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics, as well as a meet and greet with me before the show. Presale goes live on Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at TheLRay.com and use code MEACULPA, all in one word, to get the first tickets at TheLRay.com or find the link on any of my social media handles or in this episode's description. And now, on to the show. This is my This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Maya Culpa Podcast. I was struck by something 90-year-old William Shatner said recently. You may remember Shatner as the original Captain Kirk on Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. He said that when finally traveled to space aboard a Blue Origin New Shepard rocket earlier this year, it made him profoundly sad. From the infinite darkness of space, Shatner looked back at our Earth and thought how fragile and endangered the planet is. And I quote, I discovered that the beauty isn't out there, it's down here with all of us. And he immediately wanted to return to Earth and make things better. In Florida, they're trying to make things better after Hurricane Ian decimated huge parts of the state. With just 40 days until a crucial midterm election, a drama with an almost Shakespearean premise plays out in national view. Political foes forced by crisis to become each other's most important ally. Enter President Joe Biden and Governor Ron DeSantis. He said, you know, all hands on deck, that he wants to be helpful. And he said, you know, ask whatever you need, ask us. DeSantis put aside politics and praised the Biden administration for its willingness to help Florida deal with Hurricane Ian. Likewise, the president said he's been working very well with DeSantis. He complimented me, he thanked me for the immediate response we had. This is not about whether or anything having to do with our disagreements politically. This is about saving people's lives, homes, and businesses. But with each passing day, it's clear that nothing will ever be the same for thousands of people. The Biden administration has jumped right in to help the people affected by the hurricane and all up and down the eastern seaboard. I'm talking about millions and millions of dollars in emergency aid have already been deployed. FEMA is working alongside the Cajun Navy and other volunteers who have shown up from all over the world. Why? Because hurricanes are not partisan. They are equal opportunity destroyers. And in times like these, we are reminded that we can still work together to rebuild what's left and make it stronger. You know why, folks? Because in crisis, Americans are united. The two leaders also worked closely following the Surfside condo collapse. And while voters like seeing unity in crisis, base voters do have their limits. Following Hurricane Sandy, then-Governor Chris Christie and President Obama worked side-by-side even sharing a warm handshake. Politically, Christie paid for it when three years later, he ran for his party's nomination for president. I don't trust President Obama with our records. I know you gave him a big hug, and if you want to give him a big hug again, go right in. The recent cooperation between Biden and DeSantis is one bright spot in an otherwise tense relationship. Last week, the seditious conspiracy trial of three so-called Oath Keepers, we learned through some testimony that their leader, Stuart Rhodes, seemed to be in touch with an unidentified Secret Service agent. 
and that at one point they had planned to infiltrate the capital disguised as elderly people and parents pushing baby strollers. He is also, according to the government, the leader of these quick reaction forces who was talking a lot about bringing weapons to Virginia to stage them in Virginia at a hotel in order to bring them over the Potomac when the time came that they were called for uh, in case, quote unquote, needed uh, in this scenario on January 6th. Now, if these claims are true, the January 6th attack on the Capitol was obviously not a spontaneous event but rather a coordinated effort to stop the peaceful transfer of power with the blessing and perhaps the participation of the Secret Service. According to testimony, the Oath Keepers view themselves as the final hedge against Mr. Trump losing power. Now, I asked Thursday whether Rhodes was in contact with Trump. The witness said he could not recall. Similar to what the Secret Service said when asked what happened to their text messages from January 6th. They fucking disappeared. Now, in my opinion, all these folks have something to hide. Now, okay, you just don't forget. I see nothing. I was not here. I did not even get up this morning. But tune into the January 6th committee's next public hearing on Thursday, October 13th. Just a few weeks from the midterms, it's a good time to remind Americans that the former president, all of his men, and Jeannie Thomas tried to overthrow the government. Speaking of cult-crazed Jeannie Thomas, this hearing will be her time to shine. The committee is expected to show a new interview footage featuring her correspondence with former White House Chief of Staff Mark the Motherfucker Meadows and lawmakers from Arizona and Wisconsin that she tried to badger into cheating for Trump. I think uh, people who uh, have taken an interest in this unprecedented and obviously historic event of an assault on an American presidential election, an attempt by uh, a sitting president who lost an election to seize the presidency, I think we'll find um, the, the remaining details that have been uh, unearthed um, very instructive uh, to complete the picture. And the country is very much in danger still as there are 299 election deniers on ballots across the country. 299 and growing. Apparently, in order to get your MAGA seal of approval, you've got to repeat the big lie like you mean it and hint that you won't accept election results if you lose. It's their winning formula, so fuck you if you like democracy. You know why? Because they don't. And now would be a good time to remind you that you better vote blue or suffer the consequences. The Washington Post reports that Republican candidates in at least 12 key races, quote, declined to say whether they would accept the results of their contests, raising the prospect of fresh post-election chaos two years after Donald Trump refused to concede the presidency. Those 12 either refused to commit or declined to respond entirely, but let's be clear. We are not talking about challenging the results in court. That's totally legitimate, if not in many cases expected. This is about leaving open the possibility of simply claiming you won when you lost. Not sure if you've been following any of the debates so far, but talk about brilliant political theater. There is nothing more satisfying than watching Democrats try to control themselves as Republicans fucking lie through their teeth. In Texas, Beto O'Rourke was a class act as he kept Greg Abbott on the ropes throughout the entirety of their one and only debate before the midterms. And last Thursday, in Arizona, Mark Kelly handled hyped-up Blake Masters like a good dad whose teenage son is just a fucking arrogant prick. Also interesting in that debate was the third-party contender, Mark Victor, who spoke so passionately. You might consider voting libertarian, but don't. Victor is one of many third-party shills who can throw a tight race like the one in Arizona. And in the midst of utter turmoil for bad boy abortion denier Herschel Walker comes the challenge of his life. A single debate with the squeaky clean Reverend Raphael Warnock. This is about leaving open the possibility of simply claiming you won when you lost. And some of those who would not commit have a real chance of winning fair and square. 
Five out of 12 of them are in races labeled toss-ups by the Cook Political Report. They're tight races, like Arizona Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who's repeated Donald Trump's false claims of massive fraud in the 2020 presidential election. During these midterms, the role of debates has changed radically. Republicans are trying to avoid them at all costs. I mean, wouldn't you if all you had to offer was propaganda, alternative facts, and just straight up fucking bullshit? But a poor performance in a debate can lead to donors jumping ship. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're fucking Herschel Walker. Most Republicans don't give a shit about him. They just want him to win, back the Senate, and forget that he even exists. Your best bet is to vote for Herschel Walker. Walker. Okay? That's Forget right. what you done heard. Uh -huh. That is distractions. Right. That's when President yeah. Trump was running. Mm -hmm. Remember all of the distractions. I remember all of he the He grabbed, he said he gonna grab him by this. Uh -huh. And we was like, well, I'm so happy he grabbing somebody by, by the feet. Now we've had a busy week for Joe Biden, who, along with releasing federal pot offenders from prison, made some doomsday prophecies about a nuclear war coming from Russia. Republicans can't make up their minds about which to attack first. But there's always Hunter Biden's laptop to fall back on. And then there's also gas prices. The GOP's favorite go-to insult after inflation. And OPEC isn't helping the president's case anything either. I mean, just in time for the most consequential midterms of our lives, OPEC has announced that they will cut oil shipments, which will undoubtedly raise the price at the pump. If OPEC Plus cuts production, which would be a very stupid thing for them to do for a lot of reasons, global politics, Russia, Ukraine, U.S. relations. But if they were to do that, and the price of oil jumps back over 100 $120 a barrel. Gasoline prices are going to surge again nationwide. Biden's best effort, visit to the Middle East, will not keep the Saudis from screwing us. And three straight months of lower gas prices will be forgotten in a fucking minute. But for now, the White House is pledging to work with Congress on a bill to allow the United States to sue oil cartels for antitrust violations, a step that lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have threatened before but haven't had the guts to pull off. Now, the Biden administration looks ready to take it on. The aptly named NOPEC bill aims to reduce OPEC's control over energy prices. It's doubtful that Republicans will help Biden address the OPEC problem because they are very busy accusing him of the guy who's behind causing gas prices to begin with. So damned if you do and damned if you don't. But nevertheless, President Joe keeps swinging. Live long and prosper. And now for the main event. For many, my next guest will need no introduction. It's Alan Dershowitz, who's been an American icon for decades. The lawyer and author is known for strong and often controversially defending civil liberties, in particular, freedom of speech. He also garnered attention for his involvement in numerous prominent legal cases. Dershowitz went to Yale Law School, where he was the editor of the Yale Law Journal. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg before becoming a professor at Harvard and then retired in 2013. He has worked with the ACLU for five decades. He defended celebrity clients like Klaus von Bülow, televangelist Jim Baker, and even O.J. Simpson. In 2011, he became part of the legal team for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And then, in 2020, he even defended former President Trump during his Senate impeachment hearings. Dershowitz is a frequent commentator on legal issues and court proceedings on just about every news and or political show in the nation. He is currently a frequent contributor to the Epic Times, and today, we're happy that he's joining us here on Mea Culpa. We certainly have a lot to talk about, so let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Alan, really, thank you so much for coming on our show. I truly, really do appreciate you being here. And one of the things that I do want to initially just say, you and I may not agree on many things and so on, and I'm not here in order to create some sort of attention, news stories, and so on. I'm just more interested in your perspective on certain things because we've both been involved with Donald Trump 
and we may have different views. So I'm not here to judge, and I hope you don't judge me. So let me begin by asking you this. I just read this headline, and it intrigued me. According to Alan Dershowitz, liberal democracy dies when liberalism wins. What does that mean exactly? I never said anything like that. I want liberalism to win. I'm a liberal. I'm in favor of liberalism. I'm against radicalism, but I'm in favor of liberalism. I'm a classic liberal. Um, I believe in uh, almost completely untrammeled free speech, due process, right to counsel, meritocracy rather than um, identity politics. You couldn't be more liberal than I am. Uh, so I think democracy thrives when liberalism wins. Democracy dies when radicalism wins. Radicalism on either side, uh, radical hard left or the extremist anti-Semitic hard right. Uh, let me add the anti-Semitic hard left because uh, they, they both engage in the same kind of bigotry. But I'm a big advocate of, of true liberalism. I think liberals and conservatives have an enormous amount in common. Um, the big difference today is that many conservatives have gone over to the kind of religious social side where they violate true conservative values by um, opposing a woman's right to choose, by opposing gay marriage, um, by uh, opposing things that have nothing to do with liberalism or conservatism like reasonable climate control, reasonable gun control. If I were living in Great Britain, I'd be a conservative because the conservative party in Great Britain uh, opposes the death penalty, supports gay rights, supports a woman's right to choose abortion. They're however conservative on foreign policy and economics, which I am generally as well. I don't know if uh, I would then say, because I think you're like me on that, you believe in a woman's right to choose, correct? Um, not up to the last minute. Um, I believe Absolutely. And I agree with you on that. But under the current situation, um, health of the mother and within the certain time period, the trimester, what's your opinion then on the obvious case that exists now that has overturned Roe? Well, I was not a supporter of Roe when it first came out. I wrote articles against it and I wrote a chapter of a book against it. I didn't think there was a real constitutional basis uh, for a woman's right to choose abortion, because I think abortion is one of these existential issues that there's no right or wrong on. Do I know Agreed. when it begins? Do I know if there's a soul? It, I certainly would allow anybody on the other side to advocate their positions. I feel strongly that a woman's health, life, even psychological well-being, trumps that of an early fetus. Um, that's my view, but um, I think it should have been decided um, legislatively and not judicially. Having said that, I don't like the fact that a 50-year-old precedent is overruled just because of a change of personnel of the Supreme Court. I think that really does diminish the credibility of the Supreme Court as an institution of law. But reasonable people could disagree about that as well. All I'm interested in is opening up the channels of debate and discourse and all these issues and not shutting them down. And what we're seeing is we're living in an America where debate no longer exists. Lincoln-Douglas debates couldn't exist in the United States today. Half the country would say Lincoln is right. I don't want to hear Douglas. Half the country would say Douglas is right. I don't want to hear Lincoln. Look what's going on in Berkeley, the University of California, the home of the free speech movement. Uh, six or seven clubs, I think they're officially sponsored by the university, maybe funded, and certainly they're given space to operate in the university. They basically put up a sign that says no Zionists or dogs allowed. Um, no Jews, no Zionists, nobody who advocates for Israel is going to be allowed to speak. Uh, they don't want to hear the other side. Uh, they don't think the other side deserves to be heard. They don't want students to hear uh, the other side. The Palestine-Israel is a very complex and difficult one, and all sides should be heard. And many people have nuanced views. It's not like the Yankees and the Red Sox. Um, you don't pick sides on Israel-Palestine, you can come up with reasonable solutions. But even in baseball, I'm a big Red Sox fan, and I'm rooting for Aaron Judge to break the record. He's a great Yankee, and I understand that you can be a Red Sox fan and still support a, a player, a great player, on the Yankees. But today in, in America, you can't do that. You have to pick sides and stick with it. So, for example, I was anti-Trump. I voted against him twice. I'm planning to vote against him the third time if he runs. Uh, 
uh, a third time. But I defended him and I supported his rights uh, and I opposed unconstitutional attempts to impeach him. So now I'm hated by both sides. The left hates yeah, me. Well, look, I know I know what it's like to be hated by both sides, too. It's a <laughs> terrible, it's a terribly uncomfortable position. I know that you're obviously aware of what had happened to me with an unconstitutional remand when I refused to sign a document that was prepared specifically for me that would violate my First Amendment constitutional right and not permit me to have published my first book called Disloyal, as well as to speak to the media and so on. What was your position? Did you agree with Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein's position when he claimed that this is an absolute retaliation by Bill Barr, by the Justice Department and others against me for trying to uh, exercise my lawful First Amendment right? I'm a friend of Al Hellerstein. I've known Al since before he was Judge Hellerstein. Um, he's a very decent and, and, and terrific guy, and he's even a good tennis player. Um, and um, generally, I would tend to agree with his analysis. And uh, I don't know all the facts of your case, but at least the way you describe it, it seems like it was uh, retaliation. And nobody should ever be punished for refusing to sign, in effect, loyalty oaths um, to any particular political doctrine. Yeah. I mean, look, I owe Alvin K. Hellerstein more probably than anybody. I don't think I would have made it uh, another God knows how many more days of solitary confinement. With that time period, I was there. They had me in solitary confinement for 51, you know, for 51 days, which is in and of itself torture. I don't believe that solitary should even be permitted under certain um, certain circumstances. Look, I agree. But let me just then. Yeah, yeah. So and again, I owe, I owe Alvin K. Helstein. And I'm, I'm right now, I'm suing. I'm suing the United States uh, government. I'm suing Trump, Bill Barr, Department of Justice, Bureau of Prisons, and a whole slew of other people. You know, that brings me up to another question that, on a personal note that I'd like to ask you. You know, the current precedent, which is the case of Bivens versus six unknown named agents, uh, is under attack. This Supreme Court precedent has the power to hold accountable Trump, Barr, and their loyalists for violating my First Amendment rights and unlawfully retaliating and remanded me back, you know, into prison for an additional 15 days of solitary confinement. Now, without accountability, our country is even in more trouble than I think we currently are in. With the current congressional makeup, I don't envision the codification of Bivens. So how can victims like myself of the retaliatory acts committed by federal officials, um, how could we hold them accountable if Congress doesn't act and the Supreme Court disfavors Bivens, uh, where some say that its days are numbered? I hope not. I think Bivens is the right decision. It's a good precedent. It doesn't extend as far as you would like to see it extend. It would not apply to personally being able to sue the president of the United States, perhaps not even the attorney general. Uh, you have to prove a specific intent. You have to prove culpability on the part of the individuals you sue. Um, otherwise, perhaps you can sue the government itself, but you can't go after the head of the government individually just because he had ultimate control over the executive branch. Bivens doesn't go that far. Um, I will fight very hard to preserve Bivens. I think it's very important. I'm bringing a lawsuit now on, uh, under Bivens, and I brought many Bivens lawsuits, and they're hard. They're hard to win, but it's important that uh, government officials know that Bivens hangs over their head like a sword of Damocles, and if they violate the Constitution, they can be held accountable. It's a very important uh, precedent. Yes, except now it appears that that's all but gone. Um, I mean, they legitimately have done to Bivens what they have done to Roe. And what they're claiming is that this is not an issue for the Supreme Court to be making determinations on. This should be done by Congress, presuming that Congress has the ability to figure out what compensation or what um, resolution should be had with each and every single example where Bivens would be brought up. Now, I'm sure your Bivens case is different than mine, uh, and I'm sure it's different than probably the Bivens case that you brought prior to that. How can they presuppose that Congress can do such a thing? 
Congress is much better able to do it than the courts because Congress can have hearings. Uh, they can uh, decide how much money to be paid for each kind of violation. It's much better to have it done by Congress than by the courts. But if Congress refuses to act or can't act, and of course, Congress was set up not for action, but for inaction. Uh, you know, you need both branches of government agreeing, plus the president not vetoing. Our Constitution was not made for efficiency. It was made to check tyranny. And so it's difficult to get Bivens-type laws passed. It would be better if we could, just like it would be better if legislatures enacted abortion uh, statutes, which were calibrated and said, yeah, up to the first six months, beyond the first six months, maybe the health of the mother has to be involved, but not in the last month when the child can be viable and removed and live uh, a life. Uh, so it's always better for the legislature to do it in the course. But if the legislature doesn't do it, at least the core of Bivens should be kept. And that is that the government is not above the law and can be held accountable for gross violations of the Constitution. Whether it's legislative or judicial, there's always going to be a presumption in favor of the government, a presumption of regularity, which the lawsuit would have to overcome. Some will be able to do that. Some will not be able to do that, but it's always going to be a matter of degree. Yeah, because right now, the way that they're holding it is that the only way that you could continue under Bivens is if it is the most extraordinary of circumstances. Now, I'm not sure that there's a more extraordinary circumstance than a critic of the former president uh, who ends up being lured down to 500 Pearl Street, our criminal court here, provided a document that does not exist or has never been used before, and then told to wait in the in the lobby while they get the marshals who handcuff shackle you and then send you back you know to prison when you're there to have an ankle monitor put on. But I guess we'll see what happens. That case right now uh, is in the court, and of course, government made motions to dismiss. So I guess we'll see what happens. That will probably affect your case as well. Which court is it in front of right now? That's uh, here at Southern District, in oh, okay. the, uh, U.S. Federal Court. Now, so let me ask you this then, Alan. I pulled a few co uh, quotes attributed to you from the American thought leaders. And the quote, how dare you call themselves progressives? They are regressive. They are reactionaries. They are repressors. Can you explain to my listeners why you think that about progressives? And further, what are your, what are your personal political beliefs on that? I'm personally a civil liberties, liberal, generally Democrat, but I can't abide the hard left of the Democratic Party. Um, the people who call themselves progressives aren't progressives within the tradition of the origin of that term, which was Teddy Roosevelt's term and term used many other parts of the world. Uh, the progressives who claim that mantle today want to ban free speech engage in anti-Semitism, engage in anti-Christianity. Um, they are, many of them, essentially Stalinists. Um, they would be very happy to have somebody like Stalin in charge that would repress, not progress, but repress. Now, remember, Stalin considered himself a progressive. Uh, actually, Hitler considered himself a progressive as well. He thought he would, you know, uh, further the progress of the world by killing all the Jews, uh, Stalin thought he would uh, further the progress of the world by killing all landowners and um, Jews as well. Apparently, Jews get it on both sides uh, from extremists. Yeah, we, don't, we don't seem to catch a break now, do we? Well, you know, uh, we catch our own breaks and make our own breaks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting today. It's, I, was, I was at a doctor today. I broke my arm. Um, and my doctor was a young um, a black man uh, from a small town in the south. A uh, poor family, lived on a, a farm subsistence, uh, came to New York on his own and, and, and developed into a professional. Now he lives in Scarsdale. His daughter goes to Columbia University. It's the American dream. It's still possible, but it has to be done by the people themselves. Government can't, the government can help a little. They can hurt a lot, but in the end, communities have to support each other. Um, Jewish communities have done that over the years. By the way, there are still plenty of poor, poverty-stricken, uneducated 
Jews. We only know about those who have been uh, successful. And one is hoping that will happen to a greater degree than it already has happened within other communities. But it, it requires the leaders of those communities um, to, to push the communities themselves toward um, making the American dream come true. It's possible. And I hope it will happen. And I'd like to live long enough to see it happen. Yeah, as I would listen, that's the story of my father, a Holocaust survivor who couldn't come, uh, was denied entrance into the United States because they had malaria. So they sent him to Toronto. He grew up in Toronto, went to medical school there, came to the United States to teach head and neck reconstructive surgery. Lo and behold, meets my mom, who's a surgical nurse, you know, the four children later, all lawyers. You know, I'm, I think that, you know, many people will say that a Jewish mom is better than, than the government because they push you 24-7. But yes, we're seeing that a lot in a multitude now of communities. And like you, I hope to live long enough to see that sort of change because that's, that is the American dream. And I'm afraid that the American dream seems to be falling apart. And not so much because of education, just because really of the economic wealth disparity that's going on. You know, right now, the country's going through a very bad financial crisis. But that's only really for the middle and lower class. The ultra, ultra uber rich, they don't seem to be suffering at all. They seem to be making more money today than they've ever made before. No, I agree. I agree with that. And that is an issue that has to be dealt with not only in the United States, but it's spreading all over the world, particularly with high tech. And it has something to do with education. Today, it's crucially important that uh, a young person know how to navigate in this connected world. And if you don't, you're going to be pushed further and further down. And if you do, you're going to be pushed further and further up. And so I think we're going to see the disparities uh, grow even more. And today, uh, universities, educational institutions aren't dealing with that uh, issue. Um, they're not in many areas of the law, like political science, uh, sometimes philosophy, uh, uh, ethnic studies, uh, gender studies. They're not teaching. They're propagandizing. They're not teaching the students how to think. They're telling them what to think. And students are actually taking the bull by the horns. They're saying, we're not interested in studying political science anymore. We're interested in studying computers and economics and uh, because you can't propagandize us uh, about computers. Computers either work or they don't work. It doesn't matter whether you're a left-wing computer operator or right-wing, whether you're pro-Palestine or pro-Israel. Uh, a computer is a computer. And I think more students are sick and tired of their professors telling them what to do. City College of New York just issued, uh, there was a report issued about City College of New York. The college I went to, Brooklyn College, uh, which was a great place. And it, immigrant kids and Today, it's become a bastion of anti-Semitism, and um, it's in Brooklyn. Uh, the, the school is probably 20% Jewish or 25% Jewish, but you can't admit you're a Jew who supports Israel. Uh, you are in physical danger if you do. I'm probably, with all due modesty, probably the best-known alumni of Brooklyn College, uh, um, perhaps in its history. Um, uh, but certainly in, in, in recent years, they won't allow me to speak there. The political science says, we don't want to hear you. Um, you're pro-Israel. You're not in favor of the BDS movement. Our political science department has voted that the department is in favor of boycotting Israel. So you can't speak here. People who are anti-Israel can speak here. People who are calling for violence against Jews in Israel, they can speak here. But you, Alan Dershowitz, you can't speak at the college that you graduated from. Which is interesting then, because I'm going to make this into a two-part then second question, because you've advised Trump on several occasions, yep. right? The impeachment trial, for instance. But at the moment, he's in a bit of, let's say, say hot water on several fronts. And apparently his lawyers aren't doing much to help him either. And we know why that is, right? No lawyer worth his salt would go near him right now. But just for fun. How would you advise him now? And the second part of the question that I really want to bring up is he has somehow become almost the spokesperson for the QAnon white supremacist, the same people that hate us because of our religion. 
I just find that whole, I, I find the whole thing just to be so absurd. I don't even know how to describe it. But how would you, how would you advise him if you were right now with him? Well, first of all, I'm not his lawyer. I only represent people one time. I represented him once in front of the United States Senate. I voted against him twice. We voted against him a third time. Was totally opposed to his speech on January 6th, totally opposed to his immigration policies, uh, opposed to the manner in which he tried to pack the courts, uh, lower courts and the Supreme Court with right-wing Republicans. So he's not going to be taking my advice. But if I were to give him advice, uh, the first thing I would do is move to recuse and disqualify Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, who's going after him civilly, because she campaigned on the promise of getting Trump. In fact, I have a new book that I'm writing called Get Trump, how the effort to prevent Trump from running for re-election is hurting civil liberties. Uh, again, I'm not a Trump supporter, but I'm a civil libertarian. I don't want to see just so many of us don't want to see Trump the next president. I don't want to see us compromising our constitutional rights to prevent that from happening. So, um, you know, I would prioritize. And I don't think he is uh, going to be indicted for either the possession of classified or inappropriately possessed material. I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think he's going to be indicted for January 6th, unless there's more information that we're not aware of that comes out. I think his biggest uh, risks are his business practices, uh, particularly in New York. Um, uh, and so I would prioritize and focus a lot on that. But that is the Tish James case, in essence. Yeah. And, and the reason that he can't get a lawyer, there's a simple two-word answer why he can't get the best lawyers. He has some very good lawyers, by the way. Some of them are very good. But the reason he can't get the absolute best lawyers is a two-word answer. And you're looking at him, Alan Dershowitz. I represented him. And I have, my family has been attacked. Uh, my wife uh, went to a gym and somebody said, oh, that's Alan Dershowitz, wife, let's walk out. Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of the president, said to me sitting at a dinner party that if I knew you had been invited, I wouldn't come. Uh, close friends uh, have refused to have anything to do with me. Um, the library in Chilmark banned me as a speaker. The library banned me as a speaker. They banned my books they had 20 of my books. I have 50 altogether. They had 20 of my books in the library before the day I defended Trump. From the day I defended Trump, they never got another book in the library. I now brought them all my new books and asked them if they would circulate them. Because it's not about me. I can speak and I can sell my books. It's about people who want to hear me speak. It's about people who want to read my books. You can't do that. Just because you're on the left, you're on the right side, just because you're against a president who many people think should not be reelected, you can't just destroy civil liberties in the interest of getting Trump, which is why I'm writing this new book. Right. I mean, I, I'm with you on all of that. It's exactly what they did to me, except yeah. it was Donald Trump, Bill Barr, and so on, when they wanted to prevent me from speaking who does it to you, whether it's the right or the left, it's extremists on both sides that are prepared to compromise civil liberties in line. Yes, and I agree with you totally on that. And, and it shouldn't be, and nobody should be going after your family, including something that I have in my new book that's coming out on the 11th, Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the United States Department of Justice Against His Critics. The Southern District of New York prosecutors gave me 48 hours. It was a Friday if I didn't plead guilty, come in and plead guilty on Monday, they're filing an 80-page indictment that was going to include my wife. My wife? What does she have to do with it? I mean, the tactics that they used were no, abhorrent. That's not new. I've had cases going back to the 1960s where they threatened, uh, in one case, a student uh, who was at Columbia College who was the son of the man they were trying to get to testify against the mafia guy. And um, we won that case and, and made sure that the son couldn't get indicted. But the Justice Department uses very dangerous tactics. They, they used it against Jonathan Pollard. They indicted his wife. And, of course, it all started with the Rosenbergs. Uh, they indicted uh, Mrs. Rosenberg, knowing full well she wasn't guilty, and they executed her. Um, they were essentially holding her hostage. They thought that by arresting her, convicting her, and sentencing her to death, 
her husband, Julius Rosenberg, would um, turn in his Soviet spy masters and lived in the United States and had a spy network. There was a real spy network. Um, but the Rosenbergs were zealous communists, and they both went to their death and, and wouldn't disclose anything. But the Justice Department framed her knowing that she wasn't guilty of the crime simply in order to put pressure on him. Do you or do you not believe that any of the lawsuits, whether it's the Georgia, Tish James, potentially now the referral to the DOJ, to the IRS against Trump, do you think any of these actions, because there is a multitude of them, will ultimately take him down? Or do you just think he's bulletproof? And more, more so, do you think that's dangerous for the country? Let me ask, answer the first, the last question first. Of course, it's dangerous for the country. You never should target somebody. Letitia James, what she did, reminds me, it's not as bad, but reminds me of the conversation between Stalin and Lavrenti Beria, the head of the KGB. Beria said to Stalin, show me the man and I'll find you the crime. And a friend of mine wrote a book showing that in the Soviet Union, every single citizen committed at least three felonies a day. And it was up to the government to decide which ones to prosecute. But they all had that sort of Damocles hanging over them. So it's extremely dangerous for an attorney general to say, I'm running for office in order to get X, Y, or Z. You, you have to, the crimes have to be obvious. You can't search for crimes. And I don't think that easy to bulletproof, nor do I think he's going to be uh, c convicted of any crimes. Um, there may be civil liability, even though I think that's a hard case. After all, who are they protecting? They're protecting the big banks who we borrowed money from. The banks obviously had the ability to go and check for themselves whether 40 Wall Street is worth $250 million or $500 million. You don't need the government to protect the banks. They have all the auditors and accountants and um, uh, ability to do a square foot analysis of any given building. So I just don't understand who the victims are here. Um, uh, if I were Trump's lawyers, I would be optimistic about the possibility that he will not be prosecuted. What I worry about, I'm not Trump's lawyer. I was, and so I still maintain uh, a lawyer-client privilege with him. What I'm worried about is that these attempts to get him may bolster his support uh, among people uh, who are in doubt, and it may help him become nominated and then eventually possibly um, um, uh, uh, elected. I think he's more likely to be nominated than he is to be elected. I don't think that he's going to be elected again, depending, of course, on who he runs against. Yeah, I don't think either. I don't think he runs. I don't think he's going to get the nomination. And I know that he's not going to ultimately elect to run for the sole purpose that that would stop him from his fundraising, which he has done, you know, incredibly well with at, you know, the um, expense of some very stupid people, as I would say, when you're funding uh, another man's legal um, issues. And that man is an allegedly worth $10 billion. But I love the fact that you brought up the book Three Felonies a Day. I read that while I was incarcerated by um, Harvey Silvergate. Talking about books, you got to read my book. It's called The Price of Principle. It's just recently out. And the subtitle is Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. And it's all about the fact that there are very few principled people left in the country who will defend somebody they disagree with, who will not choose sides. And I tell the story in The Price of Principle of what happened to me. Um, the Democrats hate me because I defended Trump. The Republicans hate me because I voted against Trump. And my family has gotten squeezed uh, as a result. Not only have I been banned by the Chilmark Library, I've been banned by major Jewish organizations like the 92nd Street Y, Temple Emanuel, the largest reform synagogue in New York. One of I the belong there. Yeah. In the world. Well, you shouldn't um, uh, because they are engaged in McCarthyism and they banned me. You may remember that I was the most popular speaker there. I had uh, 1,600 people come to hear me do trials. I did trials of biblical characters, Abraham for attempting to murder Isaac, um, Moses, you know, I did, and they loved it. And then suddenly, because I was falsely accused by a woman I never met of having sex with her and ultimately disproved it, and she dropped her charges, uh, and her lawyer admitted on tape that uh, she was wrong, simply wrong, she never met me. But just because of the accusation, I wrote another book called Guilt by Accusation, just because of the accusation, 
these Jewish institutions canceled me and banned me and wouldn't allow me to make the case for Israel to their students, to their members, etc. And so in my book, The Price of Principle, I tell those stories and I talk about how dangerous it is that both sides, Republicans and Democrats, are moving away from principle. All they want is partisanship. They do it because they can. Um, and the Republicans and the Democrats are equally at fault. But if you write a book saying Republicans and Democrats are equally at fault, nobody's going to buy it. Well, that's very true. But you and I enter a similar situation with that. You may recall at my House Oversight Committee hearing. And don't forget, I did six others that were not televised. That one was attacked vociferously by the Republicans, which was all established by the, by the RNC, by Donald, who had sent out memos to all of them stating these are the words that we want you to use against Cohen, including liar, tax cheat. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book, Revenge, I've never failed to pay taxes. I've never, I've never been, um, I, it's not a cash business. I've never had overseas businesses, no nominees, no, I have, there was an error. And so instead, what they needed to do, and we see that now from Jeffrey Berman's book, they needed to whitewash the entire case that was brought against me to extricate Trump's name from every single aspect that they could. And I like Jeff Berman's bullshit about holding the line. He didn't hold the line. They actually took like 20 some odd pages out of the report. He holds on to it, doesn't say a word, doesn't report this unethical or illegal action. And instead, what does he do? He decides to write a book about it. I'm with you on this one, Alan. The far left, the far right, they, they have no principles. And I hate to say it, Trump has become far right. Well, it's interesting because obviously you know Trump a lot better than I do for a lot longer period of time. But when I knew him slightly and knew of him more, he was essentially a moderate liberal. I mean, he supported a woman's right to choose a board. <laughs> yes, yes. Control. He was in favor of gay rights. You have to be in favor of gay rights if you live in New York, obviously. Um, and then he decided, as many politicians do, that you need a base. And the base that he opted for was the Christian conservative base. And it got him elected president of the United States. Yep, that it did. So let me ask you this then. What's your take on the big lie and the division that it's caused in the country? Is it is it time for some of the people still pushing the lie to stand up and tell the truth? I mean, especially Republicans who know better and stay quiet. I mean, well, what value is there in continuing to maintain it? The, the point of the, the, the price of principle, the actual point of the book, is that Democrats have a special obligation to stand up against Democrat extremists like the progressives, and that Republicans have an obligation, a special obligation, to stand up against the right-wing Republicans. And I think you're 100% right. I would like to see more Republicans say, look what principle, what uh, President Trump has said, former President Trump has said about winning the election is false. He didn't win the election. The election was won fair and square by Biden. And we should stop all of that. And that has to come from Republicans. And by the way, I've set up two standards before Trump could be reasonably prosecuted. The Hillary Clinton standard um, and and the other one, uh, well, it's the Hillary Clinton standard that's the most, but the other one is the Nixon standard. Uh, what's the Nixon standard? Nixon was forced to resign, not because Democrats wanted him out, but because Republicans said to him, unless you, we're going to impeach you and remove you. And that has to happen. If, if Trump is going to be prosecuted, it has to be because Republicans are willing to say he crossed the line and he should be prosecuted. I don't think that's happened. The other is the Hillary Clinton standard. You have to prove that what he did with the classified material and keeping material at home was considerably worse than what Hillary Clinton did. And I don't think either of those standards can today be met. So I don't think he's going to he's going to um, uh, be prosecuted. But, you know, more evidence could come out. You probably know more about that than I do. Um, well, why is it why is it then, Alan, that the Hillary Clinton standard would have anything to do with it? I mean, there's the Presidential Records Act. Not only not, not only did he violate. That's not criminal. That's civil. The Presidential Records Act. Yeah. Right. However, under subpoena, 
he was required to turn over, for example, a series of documents to Tish James. He's now violated that as well. He turned over the documents. Look, you know Donald. I certainly know him very well. He does what he wants to do. He doesn't have respect for the law. He certainly doesn't have respect for lawyers. His belief system is that if this lawyer leaves me, I'll find another. They're a dime a dozen, which except is also Roy, why he chooses. Except Roy Cohn, right? Except Roy Cohn. Yes, except Roy. His model of what a lawyer should be. And I, I, I knew Roy Cohn. I don't know if you did. Um, were you around when Roy Cohn was around? Or? I met Roy when I was about 14 years old. Uh, but no, I did not know him as an adult. Yeah, I knew him well. And um, we worked together on the Von Bulow case. I was representing Von Bulow. He was representing Von Bulow's daughter. And um, there was a part of him that I admired. He was a very tough, loyal person. And there's a lot about him I didn't like and didn't admire. But he was obviously the model of the fixer and uh, that, that Donald Trump wanted to see as his lawyer. Um, you know, I need a Roy Cohen. Uh, is what I'm, he's been quoted as saying. Uh, but obviously, other lawyers, um, he doesn't have as much respect for. I understand that. Yeah, he has none. For, and he has no respect for the law. He has no respect for process. So he was required. I mean, he, they took him to court. He lost. He appealed. Right. We know the Trump delay tactic. Went on appeal. He lost that. Went to the Supreme Court. He lost that. He was required to turn over the documents. He elected not to turn over everything. They find the documents in the raid. And now he's turning and saying, I didn't have to turn them over anyway, despite all the other evidence, which shows he was obligated to do it. He has no respect for the law. And look, I think the Tish James case is possibly the, the one that certainly takes his company absolutely apart. Um, and I think with the referrals to the IRS, I think it's very clear that they're going to be able to show a pattern of willful tax evasion. It's my opinion. They'll be able to pin on him directly rather than underlings, people who've already pleaded guilty. He's obviously going to say in his defense, I just didn't deal with things like that. Whatever they told me to pay, I'd pay. I told them to minimize my taxes. I told them to maximize the valuation of my houses. That's what we do. Um, but I didn't try to cheat or uh, violate any internal revenue laws. He's going to say that. And it's going to be hard to disprove. Yeah, except the fact that the Trump organization, his eponymous company, every single thing that went on there had to be approved by Donald. There was nothing that went on there, including the purchasing of pens or paper clips. Everything was approved by him. And I, I highly doubt that Alan Weisselberg or any of the other people that were involved, including Mazer, um, you know, the accounting firm, really want to go through what I went through on his behalf, especially the fact that they know he could be the single most disloyal human being on the planet. Why do you think he? Why do you think he wasn't more loyal to you? You had worked for him for so many years. What? what why do you think he turned against you? Well, first of all, I think people had whispered in his ear, and as I've always said, the last person that whispers in Donald's ear owns what's in between his ears. So, I also believe that he somehow thought that I would fall on the sword for him based out of loyalty. I do truly believe that. And then ultimately, when he started to see that I was not, and I came forward, um, he started making up all sorts of things, had other people like Matt Gates make up all sorts of things. And then they put the pressure on the Southern District of New York to come against me hard. I mean, I've never, no, nobody I've ever spoken to has seen a case start and end in 48 hours over the course of a weekend. You know, the part that bothered me the most is that the sentencing memo that I presented to Judge William H. Pauley III was filled with statements and facts that show that there was no tax evasion. I mean, I've never not filed taxes. I've never been audited in my life. I've never, I've never even requested an extension. I paid millions of dollars in taxes, there was an error, but I provided to my accountant every single bank statement in a organized 
three-ring tabulated file in, in, a, in, a, in a file folder, organized and tabulated, showing every single deposit which was located, which was deposited into Capital One Bank that's located the base of the building I live in. There was no intent, whatever my accountant told me. They weren't going to have it. And so they put a gun to my wife's head, and I couldn't take that chance. Yeah, no, look, I understand that. I've had many clients who've pleaded guilty uh, to avoid what's called the trial penalty. Um, I have a, a case right now that I'm uh, consulting on where my client was offered no jail time for a plea of guilty. Um, but if he lost, he would get 20 years. I was not his lawyer at the time. I would have probably told him to take the deal. He didn't take the deal, was convicted, and he got 20 years. Um, I had another client who was offered, a doctor who was offered probation, and he didn't, and he got 11 years. Uh, so the trial penalty is, is a horrible thing. And I actually discussed that with Donald Trump when he was considering pardons. And he did pardon at least a couple of, not pardon, commuted a couple of sentences of people who had gotten these 75-year sentences when they should have gotten three or four-year sentences. Um, um, and, and it's very important to undo that and make sure that nobody, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, are allowed to bring your wife in or your children in and threaten them in order to essentially induce or extort, you might even say, a, a guilty plea from somebody who might be innocent or might be guilty or often somewhere in between. That's often the case. Often there are gray areas. Yeah, true. Well, let me ask you this then. Do you think that America is heading towards an autocracy or something like it? Because it sure feels like the winds of fascism um, are blowing. And I'm not even sure most Americans understand that it's happening. No, what I do agree. you see from your vantage? What do you see from your vantage point? I, Should we be worried about the future of our democracy? Very much so. I only have two or three minutes left because I have a, another uh, matter. But um, I think the, there's today you, will, you and I will disagree about this possibly. The greatest danger comes from the hard left. This danger from the right. There's no question. Uh, there are neo-fascists in this country on the right. But the progressives are in control of our schools, and they're training and propagandizing the future leaders of America. And they're propagandizing them against free speech, against due process, against the right to counsel, uh, against basic decency, against debate, against dialogue. And what I see going on in the universities today, whether it be Brooklyn College or even Harvard uh, at Columbia, um, what I see going on in the universities today is a portent of the future, because these 22-year-old kids, 20 years from now, will be running for president, running for Congress, running for the Senate, running for governors. And if they have been propagandized to ignore or even to uh, oppose uh, these basic core fundamental constitutional rights, we're in deep trouble. So I think we are in deep trouble. And I don't, I'm 84 I don't think I'll live long enough to see the pendulum swing back. I think you will live long enough to see the pendulum swing back to a more moderate place. I will try in my remaining years to, to push the pendulum as hard as I can toward the center. But it's going, to be, it's going to be a struggle. Again, I hope people will read my book, The Price of Principle, because these arguments, if you agree with them, I make them in much greater length and depth in my book, The Price of Principle. And um, uh, I work very well. Alan, I have just I have just one last question for you. All right. Um, Because you're a man in the world, you're a scholar, legitimately a great legal mind. If you would do me the honor, if you could impart on my on my listeners some wisdom on voters as we head into the elections, you know, what would you tell us? What would you what would you tell the average American who'd like to believe that America is still a great nation, but fear that extremists on both sides are destroying our prospects? Well, I would say you're right. And I would say the one thing you should not do is vote party. Um, I know a lot of people who say, I'm going to vote Democrat, even if it means voting for ABCD, who are terrible, horrible, uh, because I want the Democrats to control the Senate. I've seen others who say the same thing about Republicans, that woman Green from um, Georgia, whatever. No, don't vote for any individual who will undercut democracy. Don't be a party loyalist. Be loyal to America, to the Constitution. 
And I have one question for you, finally. What part of Brooklyn are you from? Well, I was born in the Brooklyn Hospital on DeKalb Avenue. Uh, my family moved out of Brooklyn when I was two. We moved to the five towns of Long Island, where well, I grew up. That's part of Brooklyn. Um, because you're <laughs> Brooklyn, and I, I still have a little bit of my Brooklyn accent. You have more of a Brooklyn accent, because um, uh, the five towns are part of Brooklyn. You know, they may be 30 miles or 20 miles away, but everybody from the five towns grew up near me in, in Borough Park in Williamsburg. So three cheers for Brooklyn. Thanks for having me on my show. Good luck to you. Alan, thank you so much, my friend. Thanks for joining. And now for today's mea culpa. There are lots of races across the country that are currently too close to call. That shouldn't be close at all. And I'm not a vote blue no matter who guy. I just like it when the best person wins because then we all win. I'd potentially consider a candidate that's not caught up in a cult and doesn't have to answer to Trump if they have a record and a plan to back up their bid for office. But take the race between Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance in Ohio. Vance has proven that he is venal. He's a venal piece of shit that would crawl on his big belly over broken glass to get power. He's exploited his own family's drug issues, flipped his position on abortion, kissed up to fucking Trump after dissing him, and why? All because there's nothing that he won't do to win. Powers is like Viagra for J.D. Vance. Without it, he's nothing. He's a wannabe fucking Tucker Carlson, hardly a lofty goal. But I did enjoy his book, though gave me insight into how he was raised and who he was before the MAGA infected his soul and turned him into a Christian nationalist creep. Tim Ryan has worked for the state of Ohio for the last two decades and has a record of success. He's a smart type of guy you want to have a beer with because he's got a sense of humor, even self-deprecating on himself. Ryan's been elected to the House nine times. He's done great things in the Senate, but his primary focus remains on the economy and quality of life in Ohio. With Ryan's proven track record in any other race, it would be a no-brainer. But Vance, like Herschel Walker, is handpicked by Trump for name recognition and celebrity status, not because they'll work hard for the states. Sherry Beasley, the former public defender, now running for the Senate, was the first black woman to serve as Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, for God's sakes. She is as good a candidate as anyone could ever hope for. And yet her opponent, Ted Budd, another white guy endorsed by Trump, is just so-so. Budd is good at attacking Biden, but has a virtually non-existent plan for North Carolina. And then in swing state Nevada, we have a race that should also be simple if you're a voter that gives two shits about anything. But at the time of this reporting, Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto is tied with Adam Laxalt. Adam Laxalt is so extreme that not even extreme Republicans are donating to his campaign. Laxalt would be a hard turn to the right for Nevada, but especially for the residents of Sin City, whose economy basically runs the whole state. Laxalt has promised to repeal a bipartisan education bill that's actually supported, guess what, by everyone in the state, except for him. People, do you see the problem here? It's not just that the Democrats are great choices in all three of these states, it's that they are running against MAGA middle-of-the-road fucking morons. So how can you help? Okay, keep these three worthy candidates' hopes alive. Tim Ryan in Ohio, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, and Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. All these close races need more than your thoughts and prayers, though. They need infusions of cash and volunteers on the ground and on the phones. It's go time, Democrats. No more fucking around. We have these races to win and democracy to defend. Now we can do it with your help. So let's get out there. Let's do what we can. And most importantly, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. 
Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth.